Well, good morning, everybody. I'm going to read this passage of scripture to start with. It's uh, it's a lengthy passage, um, and I've it's actually excerpts from chapter nine, Nehemiah chapter nine. It's not the entire chapter, but it's uh, it's it's a big chunks of it, and I'm trying to get the really uh, a sense for where this whole chapter is going. So uh, we start uh, by reading the scripture, Nehemiah chapter nine. On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood, and it mentions uh, a number of the Levites, and, and they go on to say, they cried in a loud voice to the Lord their God, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And then verse six, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens, with all of their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them. You preserve them all, and the hosts of heaven worship you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him a covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the the Girishite, and have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all of his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to that to this day. And you divided the sea before them, and and they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land. And you you cast their uh, pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters and a pillar of cloud by a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light the way which they should go you came down on mount sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws good statutes and commandments and you made known to them your holy sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and laws by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go and to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. In verse 16, there's a shift. But they, our fathers, acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck, and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey, and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck, and appointed a leader to return them to slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, 
gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them by day did not depart from them nor the pillar of fire by night to light the way for them by which they should go. You gave them good, your good spirit to instruct them, and you did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Nevertheless... <laughs> They were disobedient and rebelled against you. And, you. and they cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And at the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them into the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard them from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercy. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God who keeps covenants and steadfast love, let not the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until today. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you acted faithfully, and we acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept the law or paid attention to your commandments your warnings that you gave them. Because of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of the princes, of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And that's the reading of our scripture for today. So, uh, there's a lot here. <laughs> this, uh, this could be multiple sermons. But I want to really draw out of this sort of the heart of what this passage is all about and the heart of what the Israelites are going through here, or the Jews. And uh, so this opens on the 24th day of the same month, it says, or this month. Uh, that is the, the same month that was in the previous chapter. So that is, these events that are written about here took place on the 24th day of the seventh month. We know that from the previous chapter. So that means that these events in this passage actually took place just two days after the Feasts of Booths that we had been talking about last week was over. The Feast of Booths lasted from the 15th day to the 22nd day of the seventh month. Then two days later, on the 24th day of the seventh month, we have this day take place, this incredible day of confession and repentance. Now, 
As I was looking at this passage, the first few times that I looked at it, I was really struck by the apparent contrast between these two chapters. The apparent contrast from chapter 8 to chapter 9. I was struck by the apparent contrast between the events and the mood and the spirit on, on the 22nd day of the seventh month as opposed to the 24th day of the seventh month. In two days, so much changes. In chapter 8, on, on the first day of the month, or if we go all the way back to the first day of the month, the people are gathered after the completion of the wall. They read the word of the Lord publicly for half a day they spend reading it. And then Ezra and Nehemiah, they instruct the people on that day, they instruct them actually not to mourn. Like they hold them back from mourning and weeping. In fact, Nehemiah tells them to go and enjoy choice foods, sweet drinks, right? And to share with those who had nothing. This was to be an all-encompassing celebration. And he tells them not to give in to the mourning and the weeping. He says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength, right? That was just at the beginning of this month that they're, that they're in. And then the spirit of celebration continues on the 15th day of that month when the Feast of Booths is reenacted amongst them. And for eight days, they celebrate this incredible, f- fun feast, something that had not been celebrated for, it, it looks like, up to a thousand years. And, and now, near the end of chapter eight, with all of this celebrating, with all of this feasting, you know, being, being re- revisited, with the walls rebuilt and restored, and and with the word of the Lord again being proclaimed, uh, there was great joy. In fact, the the chapter sort of ends in chapter 8, verse 7. It says that there was actually great joy. It wasn't just joy. It was very great joy, it actually says. And then comes the contrast. We go from that right into this contrast. Then we go into chapter 9. And we go from the 22nd day to the 24th day. Two days. That's barely enough time for them to sort of clean up their booths from the Feast of Booths. And the Israelites gather again, right? And this time, they're not feasting. They're fasting, right? They're they're no longer celebrating. They're wearing sackcloth. And they've heaped dust and ash, earth, upon their heads, and they are in this deep sense of mourning. I mean, what a change. What a shift. What a contrast. Almost a contradiction, you might say. Or is it? And I admit that at first I was struck by what a, a, a contrast and near contradiction there was between these two chapters. But as I looked closer and closer and tried to feel and sense my way into what these people were experiencing, I really came to the understanding that this is not so much a contrast in scene, but rather it's more of a complementary scene. You see, what's happening here is that God is working and reviving. He's working this incredible renewal and revival among these people. Really, that is what the whole book of Nehemiah is about. From beginning to end, it's about the revival of God's people at this particular point in their history. And in these chapters, we come to really what is the highlight, the apex of that revival process. And in the course of their being revived, reestablished, renewed, even rebuilt, they experience great joy. 
very great joy, we're even told. And as the goodness and the blessing of God is once again poured out upon them, it is like they are now finally realizing those plans that God has for them that Jeremiah prophesied and promised 140 years ago. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. They've been waiting and waiting and now here it is. It's just being poured out and breaking out all over them. But you know what? That's only the one half of the revival experience. The great joy, the feasting, the exciting celebration half of it. And in chapter 9, we see what I think is the other half of the revival experience, of the revival process, if you like. And it's, it's what I would call the broken-hearted, reflective, confession, repentance part of the revival experience. And I guess that as we look at the principles of this half of what, the, of, of what revival is, here I think is the challenge for us. I think we need to begin to think about asking ourselves, quite frankly, if we are willing to have even this principle also applied to our lives and to our church's life for the sake of revival, that revival might actually come to us too. You know, the joy and the celebration and the feasting, that's the easy part of revival to receive, for sure. But, but that brokenhearted part, that somber, reflective, soul-searching, confession, repentance part of it, well, that's not so easy. That's not so, so simple to just receive. Now, I would say that it's, it's cleansing, and it's purifying, and it's revealing, and it's, it's humbling, and that's all good, too, but... It's not easy. Those things are good, but they're not necessarily easy. But they are essential to revival. Even, even to remaining consistently in the place of revival. Those things are important. So let's look at these elements, this part of the revival process, and see what we might we'll learn and what we might be led into. So brokenheartedness, the brokenheartedness that we see in this passage. It's interesting to me that the book of Nehemiah starts with brokenheartedness, with Nehemiah's own brokenheartedness in chapter 1. With Nehemiah back in Persia, back in the city of Susa, he hears, he receives news of the broken down walls of the city of Jeremiah and the great trouble and distress and disgrace that the people are living in there in this broken down city, and his heart breaks. It becomes broken. And he sat down, it says, and he wept for some days, and he mourned and fasted and prayed before God. That's how the book started. And now, some time later, it's, it's been now months later, with the city now restored, with the feasts and the celebrations now reinstituted, with so much having been accomplished, here we are again with Nehemiah and the people gathered, fasting, wearing sackcloth, and, and putting dust and earth on their heads, praying to God. They're back again at this work of repentance. 
And I think that it is important for us to remember that the experience of, of brokenness and brokenheartedness and repentance, it, it repeats itself. It must repeat itself in our lives. It's not a once and done kind of thing and you don't have to do that again. If that were so, Jesus wouldn't have included those lines in the Lord's Prayer, you know? We're, we're, we're to confess to, to, to God our, 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 our trespasses and to one another. This is a prayer that's to be prayed over and over again to, to retain our, our spiritual health. And it includes that repentance which ought to be and must be over and over again. That is part of the journey of faith with God. And while the Christian life should certainly be filled with joy and celebration, I mean, after all, we are the redeemed of the Lord. We are forgiven. We are restored. People, We ought to celebrate that. It should also, however, be perhaps frequently sprinkled with some brokenness too. Because, you see, after all, we are redeemed because we have been lost and bound. So we needed to be redeemed. And yet still we get ourselves again often lost and somewhat bound again and again as this passage reveals. And God needs to redeem us, and he faithfully does so again and again. Again, we are forgiven, right? We're forgiven because we've done things that need to be forgiven. And there's something to celebrate in that. But the truth is that we can fall back into some of those deeds, and we need to be forgiven again, restored again. And, and we stumble, and God picks us up and restores us again and again and again. And that's worth celebrating, right? God's faithfulness and goodness for sure. But it's also worthy of some level of brokenness in that we can continually find ourselves in that state again and again as well. You see, there's also something I think that's sad about that too. Something that's worthy of some level of brokenness and mourning and repentance too. The principle here is that the truth is that a broken and contrite heart God will not despise, right? That's scripture. It's a broken and contrite heart that God will not despise. It is the humble heart that is able to draw near to God that God will receive. These things are important. And on the other side, the contrasting side of it, it's the proud, right? That won't be contrite. That, that doesn't become humble before God. That will not be broken before God. It's the proud heart that remains far off from God. And if our hearts are not humble and soft and even split open before God, I, I think regularly, because they should be, well, then they'll soon become hard. And the cold, and even indifferent towards God and His goodness and His grace. In fact, if it's, it's, it's not that unusual that days of great joy, of, of discovery in the Lord, are also then followed by days of humility and humbling in ourselves as we've come before the Lord. It's not that unusual we to be drawn near to God in some level of victory and celebration and to discover some new and beautiful and awesome truth about him and his graciousness towards us and then also to realize some previous unrealized uh, darkness or deficiency or even corruption in our own hearts that 
we didn't see until that new light of the presence of God dawned upon us. Do, do you remember the first time Peter realized who Jesus was? When, when Jesus first called Peter to come and follow him. You see, Jesus met Peter by the Sea of Galilee. Peter was a fisherman, a seasoned veteran fisherman. And Jesus talks to Peter and he says, let's go out and cast our nets and, and, and in the deep waters. And Peter says, oh Lord, we've been fishing all night. There's, there's no fish. It's not going to happen. Jesus, I know fishing. You know preaching, I know fishing. I'm telling you, there's not going to be any fish. And then Jesus urges him to do it. And he goes, well, if you say so, I'll do it for you. We're not going to catch anything, but I'll do it for you. They go out. He throws us at one cast, right? One cast. And he catches the biggest load of fish that he has ever seen in a single cast. It's, it's impossible, the number of fish that he catches in this one cast. So big that he, the, the boat simply can't handle it. He has to hail his friends to come and help him. They load, they overload both boats with this one cast of the net to the point that they're almost sinking. The boats limp to the shore. Peter gets out of the boat. You know what he does? Now he realizes who Jesus is. What he does is he falls at Jesus' knee, it says. And he says, go away from me, Lord. He calls him Lord. He's recognizing something here. Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Right? That's what happens when you can come to these realizations and closeness and understanding. Of God. And if we want renewal in our faith, in our lives in Christ, if we want freshness there, a growth in, in new experiences with Him there, if we want His power, you know, and His presence among us, working amongst us and through us in ever increasing ways if we want to be drawn near to him for those things, well, well, then we need to anticipate that we will also experience some brokenness in ourselves. A brokenness and a yieldedness before God. The truth is that God will only plant his seeds of revival in soil, in hearts that have been broken up and plowed deep, right? And typically mournfully, with prayers of repentance before God. And that's a good thing. That is actually a healthy and a freeing and a liberating thing to go through that. Now the second element here that I see is this element of reflection that's happening in this passage, right? They reflect so much in this passage. And, and I, I said earlier that it was a mournful sort of reflection, but that's not entirely true, is it? Some of the reflection here is not mournful. It's actually quite beautiful. The first half of this reflection, which starts in verse 5, it's not all mournful. Instead, it's filled with praise, right? And honor and remembering and reflecting on the goodness and the faithfulness and the mercies of God. And what a great passage of praise this starts out as. And here, as they reflect, the people retrace their history with God. From verse 6 all the way through verse 15, they list off time and time again when God came to the Israelites in, in this incredible faithfulness and in mercy and in grace and in blessing. 
from Abraham through Joshua, right? That's, over, that's a span of, of like almost a thousand years. God was faithful, faithful, faithful. He was gracious, gracious, gracious. And they acknowledged this in their praise of him at the start of this passage. And then these people who have just recently themselves been experiencing God's faithfulness you know, and graciousness in, in the rebuilding and the restoring, not only of their city, but, but now it's the restoration of their very lives and faith as well, as they're remembering, as they are proclaiming that God has always been like this, faithful and gracious it's like, it's like in the midst of that, right then at that point in time, they, they find themselves in a place where they are particularly aware, particularly struck and sensitive to the awesome, awesome goodness and graciousness and faithfulness and glory and power of their God. They are so acutely aware of it. It's, it, it's, it's like lights go on. And it's not just a light glow of realization that has gone on for them. It is like these banks and banks of intense, illuminating floodlights of realization have gone on for them. Like, it's like stadium lights that turn like night into day has gone on for them. It's almost as though at the same moment, or right on the heels of recognizing God's goodness and graciousness and faithfulness throughout their history of their forefathers, suddenly, just as profoundly, it's like the other shoe drops. Yes, God has been faithful. And then in verse 16, it says, but, <laughs> right? But, you were faithful, God, but our forefathers. You were gracious, God, but our forefathers. You were good, God, but our forefathers. They were arrogant. They were stiff-necked. They did not listen. They failed to remember you. They rebelled against you. They kept stumbling and falling back into and giving themselves over to their temptations, their behaviors, their pride, their lust, their sin, their weakness. And again, that's part of the effect of coming that close to God and experiencing and realizing the depth of his goodness, the history of his goodness and holiness and graciousness. We see where we fail. When we get that close to that and are struck by that suddenly, we are also struck by the contrasting side of that too. That God is all that and we're not. <laughs> right? That's what they're profoundly realizing in this prayer. And as the Israelites re remember to praise God for all of his immense goodness and grace to them and their forefathers, they are equally struck by their forefathers' failures and unfaithfulness and rebellion. They're struck by how they turn from God, complain to God, made demands of God, and how they would get themselves into terrible trouble. <laughs> and then God would rescue them. Right? God would again provide for them. God would again and again restore them and would not desert them in the desert. And then again, it's like again the forefathers would become stiff-necked and turn from God. And yet, and yet, over and over, 
God would continue to be gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and quick to love. Abounding in steadfast love. And over and over again, we see this cycle, right? It's this cycle all the way through the Old Testament, it seems. Over and over again, continue in this time of reflecting, in this time of prayer before God. In this passage, these Israelites have finally recognized the cycle. They finally recognized the pattern of God being good and gracious and the people rebelling and being given over to their sin and rebellion. And then God would chastise them and rescue them when they called upon Him. Over and over, around and around it goes. In their time of reflection, this is what these people are recognizing. And for them, it's kind of sad. Hence, the mourning, right? And the weeping and the confessing. That's what's happening here. And then, of course, this, this sober reflection leads them to their own confession and repentance. You see, their reflection has caused them to look at themselves as well, as well it should. So look at, are we just going to become part of that cycle? It causes them to look at how this cycle has dominated them as a people throughout their history and how they're part of it. And how they too have become and could still become stiff-necked and prone to rebel. And, and, and then God still has mercy on them. And they can see it so clearly now. So clearly now. They can wander off and they can go their own direction. Even now they still can. And here they are as a nation. Here they are as a people once again at one of those return points. Right? That's where they are in the cycle. They're at the return point in the cycle. They're at the receiving point. The being restored point. Here they are in the midst of God's mercy and God's goodness and their own brokenness. And now, you see what's happening now, what's so profound about this passage now is they want to break free from that cycle. That's what they want. That's what they're aiming for in this whole ceremony, that they would now break free from this cycle. They want to break free from the past. They, they, they do not want to to become just another link in the chain of being rescued by God and then becoming stiff-necked and rebelling again and needing to be chastised and brought back. They want to break free from that. This time they want it to be different. And that is why they are going so far back in their confession and repentance, right back to Abraham, right back to the beginning of their history as a people, right back to the start of that very chain of that cycle so that they can confess it and, and break themselves free from it. And that's one of the things that I want to make a point, a big point about today, that confession is the way to break free from it. Confession is the way to break free from it. Frequent, quick, often humble confession is the way to keep our hearts soft and to cut short that cycle of going round and round and round. And in verse 32, right, to bring history right up to their present day, they also include themselves in their confession. 
and they seem to fully recognize that they are in a pretty significant moment right here with a pretty significant opportunity to truly move ahead. They are in a place to break that cycle. God has brought them to a place to break that cycle. And at the end of the chapter, it's like they put this stake in the ground. You know, this milestone, this marker. This stake in the ground before God. And they say, from here on out, by the grace of God, it will be different. And they write this, this agreement, this vow, right? Because of all this, they say, because of all of what we've just covered, they make this firm covenant in writing and they place the seal and they seal it and on the document they write the very names of their princes their levites and their priests their leaders they put all of their leaders names on this 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 binding document and their agreement with this that that these leaders would walk and lead the people in the ways of god that they would follow and obey their god humbly that they would trust in him and submit to him and his goodness and his graciousness for them. And and here's the important part. And what about, but what about when they falter? So they've made this agreement. They've signed this covenant. They've put the names of their leaders on it. They've sealed the thing. But what about when they falter? What about when they do fail? Because they will. They will. What about then? Is it all done? Is it all over? Is it all lost? No. You see, that is when they need to just right away humble themselves, soften their hearts, and confess in humility, and turn to God in His graciousness, and just fall before Him in mercy. And do it soon. That's how you break the cycle. Do it soon. Do it often. Just do it. Yield, submit, surrender, and trust that in doing so, not only will they be forgiven and restored, but, but also that they will be steadily changed and transformed increasingly into his glorious image from one degree to another. That's the way for that to happen. That's the way to grow like that in godliness, to become more like his image from one degree of glory to another, to just speed through that cycle of repentance and get into it. So I've got, oh, there it is. How long has it been up there? A while? Okay, so I, I, I made this last night. It's, it's, it's an image of what it looks like. This is what this confession cycle looks like. So if you think about it, you could start almost anywhere in the, in the process here, wherever you happen to be. But let's start at confession because that's where these people are at, right? They're at this point of confession. If you start at confession, then God takes you to restoration, right? Restoration and forgiveness. But, but then something happens. Invariably, at some point in time, we start to slide into some level of self-will again. Either a little or a lot. It doesn't matter. It happens. It happens. It just happens. And pride is also a part of it. And that leads, what does pride lead to? <laughs> pride leads to? A fall, that's right, it leads to a fall. So then they fall into sin, and then there's an option. Now there's an option when you come to that point. You can, you can either harden your heart and spin off into a wrong direction, or you can soften your heart and get right back into the process again of confession. 
And now, now when I want you to imagine that we are looking at this process from the top down. We're staring down on top of it. And when you stare down on top of it, it looks like it's just going around and around and around and getting nowhere, right? Now, I want you to imagine, those of you who are somewhat mechanically minded, imagine looking down on the top of a bolt with a screw being screwed up into it. Okay, can you imagine that? So imagine a bolt here and a screw being screwed up into it. And imagine you're looking right down on it from the top. It looks like that bolt is going around and around and around and going nowhere. But if you come down and look at the side view of it, you see that that bolt is actually going where? It's going up. Exactly. So let's take a look at the next slide here. Here we have these two options. This is the side view of it, right? So we have the hard heart option first. And, and that starts to, when, when you come out of the hard heart side of a fall, it starts spinning the thing in the opposite direction. The screw in the opposite direction. And it's actually spiraling downward. And you end up with this bitterness that starts to grow out of the hard heartedness. It leads you into deeper bondage and various levels of pain and darkness and fear and sin and ultimately isolation. Because that's where all that stuff leads you. It leads you into a level of isolation, separation from one another because boundaries and walls are being built up between another, but one another, but even more importantly, between us and God. Isolation from our God and separation from Him. But if you go on the other side of it, if you spin off into the soft-hearted side of it, you start spiraling. You know, you go through that cycle again, but now you're going in the right direction. You're going in an upward direction. And every turn of the screw brings it one increment higher. Every turn of the screw brings it another increment higher, right? And you're actually growing. You're actually ascending. You're actually moving upward. Though you can only see it if you look at it sideways and not from straight down. And the soft-heartedness, if we, when we instill that soft-hearted procedure in our lives, it leads to just continued humility. And it leads to this level of spiritual discipline where this is just what we do when we falter. We humble ourselves and we confess. That's what we do right away. It leads to that sort of a spiritual discipline and this life of surrender to God, which leads to maturity, which leads to growth toward God, which leads to that incremental growth, growth in glory of God, growing into and toward the glory of God, bit by bit, increment by increment, glory to glory. That's what it looks like. So don't fixate on the top view of it where it just looks like we're going around and around this circle. Be encouraged from the side view of it where yes, we do need to establish that pattern in our life, but it's how we grow. It's how we move upwards. It's how we progress into God-likeness. Right? Does that sound good? One last thing I thought um, was looking at our, our um, Aerosmith Church communication page. And uh, actually, uh, who was it? I think, yeah, Sean posted this. Sean posted this, this one uh, quote here uh, from, from someone who says this. He, he quotes, Please don't give me ways or steps to have hope. Instead, point me to the one who is my hope. That's good. But let me tell you what happens. When someone either points you or me or we come together ourselves to the one who is our hope, you know where we will end up? 
when we come before him into his presence and saddle right up beside him and, and gaze into who he is in all of his hope and glory and righteousness, you know where we will find ourselves then? Just like Peter on our knees at his feet in confession and humility before him. This, with this sense of saying, oh Lord, depart from me. I'm an evil person. I'm a sinner. And let that take you into this upward process. That's what it's designed to do. That's what coming before our Lord looks like. It's the only thing that it can look like because He's all that and we're not. But He's so gracious to bring us into His presence, to take us through that cycle of repentance and renewal. And yeah, we falter again, but He takes us right back into it and that's how He's faithful. That's how we grow. Let's make sure we go straight into the humility and not harden our hearts because then it starts going the other way. It starts going the wrong way. So quick to repent. Quick. What do we have to repent of? That's where we have to end. And I don't know that we'll ever really just be able to know unless we get close to God. Get close to God and you'll know. He'll show you. The contrast will show you. So I'm going to suggest that our next stretch of, of prayer time is about us getting close to God. Let's pray that we will draw near to God, that he will soften our hearts so that we can draw near to him, so that we will have contrite hearts, even broken hearts, so that we can draw near to him. And then he'll show us more and more of where he wants to work in terms of confession and setting things right in our lives. So let's pray into that and let's be prepared. You know, if we pray into it, we better be prepared. If we pray into it and expose ourselves to that, we better be prepared because we will end up on our knees. And we will end up on our knees with, some, with a certain amount of sackcloth on and a certain amount of ashes on our head and a certain amount of fasting in our souls because we're going to need, when he shows us that, when we get near to him, the contrast that we're going to see is going to show us what needs to be taken care of, what he desires to make right and forgive and restore in us. Are we ready for that? Are we willing for that? It's a big ask. It really is a big ask. Because he will show us some things that we probably, maybe, don't really want to let go of. That we've maybe harbored. Some anger, some resentment, some fear, some anxiety. Some of those kinds of things. They hold on tight. But he wants to break us free from them. So let's pray into that in this next season leading up to Easter. And let's see what he does amongst us. Amen? All right. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for all that you've done for us. Oh, Lord, you have been so faithful. And we, not always so much. And we confess that. We must confess that. And be humble before you. And seek your restoration, your forgiveness. And to get us back onto the track that you would have us be on. Lord, lead us into that constantly. Lead us into that steadily. Lead us into that as much as is necessary that we would be in that posture of confession before you as well. Lord, have your way with us. And may we trust you in that. 
to go to the places where you want to touch us, that we fear being touched because they hurt or they're hard or we've so set and galvanized our hearts in a certain direction or with a certain attitude or with a certain bitterness against something or someone. Lord, touch us in those places. Bring us to our knees and bring us through that cycle of confession and repentance and restoration. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.